0: We are rolling. It's always take two. We need to do, do better about making sure that the first time feels like the second time. We? You got a mouse in your pocket? <laughs> okay, 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 fine. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Season 3. A little bit more laid back for Season 3. More like, you know, live to radio. Sort of me exercising my live skills. You exercising your live skills. So Cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to more laid back Season 3. How about we let the people here This new theme of of yours that you composed for season three. Hit it. It sounds great. <laughs> yeah,
1: Evan, we're going to have Evan mix everything down for us, but the, that's all the nuts and bolts featuring prominently the birthday gift that you and Dale got for me, the MXR Talkbox. box. All of these different tools and, uh, and
0: contraptions. If we're, if we're not careful, we're going to end up with a production house. We need one <laughs> at this point. I'm Garrett, by the way. My name is Garrett. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. This is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and applies it more equitably, more uh, 21st century. There, there's there been a, all of these centuries of using that phrase in conjunction with the aesthetics of Western Europe and all of that stuff. And on this podcast, we just try to break all of that up by acknowledging all of the classical music of America and all around the world. And we
1: certainly don't, we certainly don't shy away whenever these uh, topics intersect with other genres. I would point everybody to the Triloquy Tracks playlists, which has all the tracks that Spotify carries that we reference within the opus. Mm -hmm. And it is a wide and deep
0: list. You should check it out. Yeah. And we're in Black History, Black Music Month, rather, officially June. So we're going to be talking about some black music today. The guest today, Dr. Darrell Cooper, is a specialist in hip-hop. We get into hip-hop, the philanthropy that lives inside of hip-hop, the activism, the, uh, the cognitive things for the developing mind and, and musicians, mm. um, all, all sorts of really great stuff. What sort of uh, music did you have to bring in today, sort of uh, letting well, the people know what's coming?
1: As people hear this, we will be into Black History Month, but as we record it, we're on the last day of Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. And so I want to just tap in on a wave that hit me earlier uh, last week and the music and the way that I use the music to get through it. So we're going to listen to Nat King Cole singing What Will I
0: Do? Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to the Black Opera Alliance for their continued support. Lots of really incredible things happening over there. You can uh, find out what's going on at org. Also follow the Black Opera Alliance on all of the socials, Facebook and Instagram. I also want to um, give a shout out to Emma, who put me onto this website, Scott, this database of black businesses to be supported. Mm. As we're recording this, it's the 100th anniversary of the tragedy at Greenwood down there in right. um, Tulsa. So the more people are talking about black business and, and supporting black, um, I think it's really important to um, point you know folks toward that. So mm-hmm. there will be a link to that in the uh, description of this. Um, I think we one thing that we have... Uh, pulled over from season two is really dragging out these intros. Where 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 are we at? How far we? How how far into it are we? Four minutes. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and start movement one. I gotta I got get used to this live button pressing and all of that stuff again. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting these exercises going. One of the reasons I'm so um, inspired to uh, sort of give this podcast for season three a slightly looser feel of recording music and sound live to tape is because I hear a lot of other folks doing that including, you know, who is known by many as the pod father, mm-hmm. who I go, go to always when I talk about some of my podcast inspirations, Joe Button, Scott, we have incredible impeccable timing on this podcast as soon as we talk about something it, it goes happens. left or, <laughs> right? or something happens so at the end of season two a few weeks ago uh we were talking about how um how the Joe Button podcast is just such a great example of how you can match friendship with business and really, um, you know, just broaden your world and and bring you and your friends up together through mm-hmm. some some project you have. Mm-hmm. Well, the day, and I mean the day after we recorded, the news broke that they had broken up. I'll uh, put a link to um some of the things uh in the in the description of this. What I wanted to ask you, Scott, and we kind of talked about this during our break. You know, during our Uh, huddles where we weren't uh, taping money getting in the way of a project in the growth of a project Mm -hmm. even our friendship for folks who have no idea what the news surrounding uh, the whole Joe Button thing was allegedly. What what I'm hearing is that the co-hosts were on a percentage based pay scale, and when it came time for them to want to match what they were bringing home mm-hmm. and the percentage you were supposed to be with the bigger numbers and the bigger picture, Joe felt like they um, didn't need that information and they were overstepping, and one thing led to another, and we mm-hmm. have a whole different show over there now. If I um, at one point, you know, when we're making all the money like they are and I offer you all the money, uh, maybe a portion of the money they're making, but (laughs) an X percent of you know, I say at the end of the day, you are getting X percent of this money and it ends up being, you know, not chump change. Let's say I get to pay you $25,000, $30,000 a month. We're not making that, by the way. Let me make sure that's clear. Mm-hmm. But just in this situation, I'm, I'm paying you $30,000 a year. And let's say that's supposed to be 40% of, you know, everything that's being raked in. Mm-hmm. At what point, and this is, and this is my take, at what point is that $30,000 going to feel like Not enough money, or 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 that amount feels like I need to double check to make sure that you know this is actually fair for for a a salary that can pay you and more to live. You know you're comfortable. Would you ever feel like you needed to double check? My my thing was I feel I don't feel like I would need to, but anytime it's a percentage,
1: yeah, I want to know. And there's no amount of money that is going to change my mind on that front because. If you tell me that you're going to give me a percentage and then you don't show me what the what the number was, yeah. That's where I have a problem. Now, where I work now, they give me X dollars a year in salary. Yeah. I don't need to see their numbers because they we both agreed that this is what they were going to pay me. Right. So that is where the sticking point comes for me. Now, think think the opposite direction. What if you promise to pay me What if my agreement was $50,000 a year Mm -hmm. to do this podcast and then the underwriters don't come? Right. And the donations aren't as big as maybe you would have hoped. Yeah. Well, you told me you
0: were going to give me $50,000. Right. What if you ended up with 20 then? Well, my thing is that would be my responsibility. It would be up to me to do everything I can. So you're going you, to be outselling. W- I would have to be doing something. the The point I want to make, though, is fifty thousand dollars a year to do a podcast is one thing. These guys, they're doing millions. Had had a have still a lot of money, and we aren't talking about 40 hours a week either, mm-hmm. you know, no shade, not not to diminish the work it takes to produce a podcast, but at the end of the day, um, you know, they, they were doing, you know, around three hours twice a week. So six, let's add production, let's say 15 hours a week tops. And you're that bringing home, right. and you're bringing home that kind of money. I don't know, for me, I would I would chill, but armchair quarterback, as as you say.
1: No, for me, it's just the percentage because what just sticking happens, to that part yeah, of the thing, because, just sticking to it. And you know what would happen if, and this is a great example, if something happened where one of us pissed the other one off, mm-hmm. and let's let's say that this was my project, and I'm looking at all these millions of dollars that are coming in, and I go, well. I know that I said I was going to give Garrett thirty percent, but instead, I'm just going to give him ten million because I put him here, yeah. and he should be happy with that. Okay, you wouldn't like that, right? I don't know. Ten million. <laughs> but what if the what if the what if I made what if I brought in a hundred million
0: and you should get thirty then? I hear you. I hear you. What we're what we're boiling down to is how you know money just makes things. Way more complicated in in different ways. And I have one. A lot of money.
1: I have one other experience from back in my mobile DJ days. Uh, Shout out to Steve Bergeron, who started his own mobile DJ company, and I was his other guy. Mm -hmm. It was just the two of us. And I hated doing it. The reason being is because every time we saw each other, all we were doing was talking about the business. Right now, you and I do this different because we've got social time and we send texts and you know share videos and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's the friendship stuff that's going on behind the scenes, and then on Mondays, it's head down, pencil up, doing the work. Right, head down, pencil up. (laughs) Right, but you know, back back in the day when he was paying me, I was a little late. (laughs) <laughs> head down pencil
0: up you get it i, <laughs> I get instead it instead of anyway go ahead yep. <laughs>
1: no that that was the only point that i was trying to make is that you know uh, do you think that their relationship is going to survive the dust up
0: well that's what um this article um is about that i had uh that i had pulled up here that i'll have in the uh, description what's the can you scroll up what's the uh The headline to this, Mm -hmm. this is from Complex. It says, Joe Button says he's happy for Rory and Maul. Those are his previous co-hosts. So they've Mm -hmm. gone on to start their own projects, and they have this uh, video promo that's actually pretty funny. You know, uh, Rory and Maul on a job interview. It's time to look for another job or whatever. So, you know, on the the last uh, episode of his podcast, he talks about how he's happy for them and all of that sort of thing. I think it's important to talk about here and across the podcast sphere because as we see more podcasts, as more... More of us are um, beginning to have actual relationships with these shows. You were talking about a Sopranos podcast that that you're right. into. You know, if if they get into it, if those hosts get into some spats about something. I'm sure there's a part of you that still wants your podcast. It's, it's time for them to get their themselves together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really, we're, we're trained as broadcasters to think about the audience. So anyway, I, mm-hmm. I think my bigger point is um, all of the folks trying to uh, create content, do podcasts and that sort of stuff out there, whether you're in so-called classical music or not. These are conversations. These are parameters that I think need to be laid out before. Anything happens before Triloquy was pulling in any independent revenue. When I was still at Minnesota Public Radio, we talked about how, okay, if one of us gets to um, go rogue and, and mm-hmm. be on our own, it should be me first and da-da-da, mm-hmm. that, that process happened a little quicker than <laughs> we expected, That's but, weird, right? but here we are. What's your advice to um, folks out there doing podcasts and other pro- maybe starting chamber groups or whatever with their friends? Um, when it comes to laying this stuff out at the beginning, starting some sort of project that could, um, manifest in some, some money and opportunity and other things, mm-hmm. what sorts of conversations do you think need to be clear before they get going? The,
1: the simplest is what you just said. You have that preliminary conversation where you lay out the what ifs, yeah, or I guess, I, I guess I should say the if thens, but, um, You know, I I want to point out here that also money still isn't an issue because all of the donations that come through
0: the Triloquy website, that's still Garrett's living. And I'm I'm not pulling from that. And quite frankly, more than 50% of that money goes right back into Triloquy.
1: Right. So So basically what I'm saying is that uh, the podcast and Garrett is who benefits from this. So there was never any question about what I would get. Yeah, you know, so that relieves a big amount of the pressure. Mm-hmm. But I think that as long as you have some sort of a an agreed upon, you know, let's call it a mini constitution sure. or you know whatever your your mission statement on your masthead is. Yeah, as long as you've got that, then you know you can point to it and go. Remember when we agreed to this? I don't know if that would work in every instance, but it's a start. It's a it's our
0: way, especially as outside is starting to open back up. A lot of people figured out how to make money. Um, in really unique ways during COVID, right? the NFTs and... Right, and all of that stuff. So as we're coming back outside and people are collaborating and continuing all of this entrepreneurial stuff that was going down um, during quarantine, again, whether it's a podcast, a chamber group, whatever, there are conversations that need to be cleared so that we don't see, you know... All of this stuff that uh, Joe's going through. You you mentioned Mental Health Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought his therapist on. Like this has been a a big thing, and as one of the biggest podcasts out there, I think is some news that all podcasters should at least be aware of. Would you do that? Would I bring a bring my therapist yeah. on? No, my therapist is not coming on Triloquy. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about
1: the um, uh, what's what's the payment for the special? Not only fans. That's for. Oh,
0: it's not... Oh, well, OnlyFans isn't necessarily for the sexy stuff, but... <laughs> oh, Patreon. Oh, there Patreon. We go. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, maybe that'd be some Patreon content. Actually, some of my sessions, would, if you put some bed music, sound effects, that's a podcast. Damn. All right. <laughs> anyway, that gets a, a, a natural... For me, that's our sound for a natural. Okay. So when we go back and add on to something we talked about previously, or fix something we said, well, we'll add that little pretty sound to it. So a, a natural to that. Um, to transition us um, into our next accidental, out of that natural, uh, you suggested that we listen to a little Brahms, uh, some of the violin concerto. Could you could you talk about the context? Um, of that within right. the conversation of friendship and reconciliation.
1: Uh, Joseph Joachim and his wife weren't getting along, and they were starting the divorce proceedings, and Joachim thought that Brahms would be his buddy and back him up, he you know? He thought. Right. <laughs> and, and Brahms went, actually, you know, I, I kind of agree with your wife, oh. and Joachim <laughs> was like, all right, I'm out. So they were done and the violin concerto was written as sort of an olive branch you know to say mm-hmm. hey would you come on let's be buddies again you know i don't know if it worked but and well, I, I
0: don't think he played it y'all y'all know how i feel about brahms i do but i think that's a great story <laughs> here's a here's a little bit of that uh, that brahms as we get to our next accidental To talk about all the time, anyway, is that whole love triangle, wasn't it? Brahms and then um Schumann the, and Clara. The, the, Schum- the Schumanns, Nym. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't like the idea of somebody waiting in the wings for me to get out of the way. So, <laughs> when, I, die. so when I die, they can come <laughs> over here with Dell. Or I don't like that. I don't like that. And that was Brahms. Y'all are supporting somebody waiting in the dirty macin, as they say today. <laughs> well,
1: there's also, you know, from the woman's perspective, you know, Clara might have been keeping Johannes in the back pocket. You know, kept kept on hold. <laughs> Look,
0: I'm not... have you seen that beard? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Brahms was a looker in some context, in some, in some way or something. I try something. to remind myself that everybody is attracted to somebody. <laughs> you're right. You're right. E- even Brahms. <laughs> oh, even Brahms. Yeah, know I mistook
1: him for Karl <laughs> Marx once.
0: <laughs> yeah, he reminds me of the architect off, off The Matrix. Really? Someone someone to not, you know, the beard and the, oh, okay. and the stoic. Anyway, so let's get into this um, into this next accidental. I'm going to give a big flat sharp to this um, news article from see C- where's my sharp button? That's the sharp button for good things. This yeah. is an article from CNN. Um, can you uh, scroll up to that headline? It says, uh, black classical artists are turning the pain of the Tulsa race massacre into music. Before we get into the, um, the subject matter specifically... The Tulsa uh, race massacre, the the Greenwood tragedy. We've talked a little bit about how that's a bit of history that has sort of slipped through the cracks for most of us. Slipped and through the cracks; it just was ignored, buried. and how you learned about it first from uh, the Watchmen. Watchmen. What were uh, re re reprise that for us? What was your reaction? You saw this event being depicted, and you were like, "What?" My jaw was in my lap,
1: watching how gruesome the opening of the first. Episode of Watchmen was, Mm -hmm. and I thought, my goodness, this is. I I I knew that it was like sort of an alternate history Mm -hmm. timeline, yeah, but I didn't know that the Tulsa riot, that the Tulsa massacre, was real. Oh yeah. So in the moment, I was thinking that that was done for the television show. So imagine how appalled I was to find out that that actually happened, and it was just never covered. I mean, I would have remembered
0: that. Oh, that was we, a, we all would have, right? That, did you get it in school? No, absolutely not. The first I, why? And, why not? And I was actually trying to think about it today. Like, when was the first time I heard about it? And I'm gonna um, shout out one of my friends, uh, Lawrence Naff. Um, quick side note: It's weird how, in the year 2021, there are people that I have known for 20, 25 years. Only on the internet, you know, from the (laughs) days of AOL and then we Zoom and whatever, you know, Facebook. Anyway, so Lawrence is one of those folks. I met him way back when, when I was in middle school or something, um, because he was black and interested in Japanese stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I studied Japanese for many years. So, um, you know, we've talked about lots of stuff over the years. But at one point, um, we were just maybe on the phone or something, and he mentioned it offhand. And I asked him to tell me more. Uh, Lawrence, by the way, is from Oklahoma City, so he's he's not far from there. And I was shocked. This is when I'm, you know, 24, 25 years old. And as we continue to talk about well, I'll get, maybe I'll touch on this in the fourth movement, um, folks erasing critical race theory from the um, from the curriculums. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's what that's what we're talking about. Um, just burying this news, burying this history. And then people have also been uh, putting up the headlines from the next day in mm-hmm. that area that mm-hmm. read two two white people uh killed in race mass and a uh, race riot or whatever it says so there's a couple hundred there is a people. whole infrastructure that has been just demolished right and we and and the other thing bef- and we're going to get into this article but the last thing that i want to say before while i'm thinking about it I think this whole incident is a great example of how respectability, how, quote unquote, just doing your job or whatever, if you are black, if you are a person of color, if you are a woman can sometimes get you in it anyway. Because we talk about how this started. A man named uh, Dick Rowland was an elevator operator on the white side of town and then something happened and he probably, you know, barely touched the woman. Mm -hmm. you know but the elevator got jostled and bumped into her anyway so you know by the time she's done screaming and telling all the good old boys you know what this black man didn't do to her you know and the the rest is history, as they say. So th- th- there's a, there are layers and layers and layers of things here, and it's not even the only one. People have been passing around the map of all of the race, right. you know. I, one from my hometown, eighteen sixty six. You know that we're still talking about slavery, but I, I didn't even know about that, and and that's my hometown. So mm-hmm. just just you know again making sure that this history is remembered not because we're trying to be divisive but we can't come together if we aren't on the same page right
1: now let me tell you something that i'm nervous about because also among these stories like the one that you will share on the page about uh, from cnn mm-hmm. this one that we're reading from of interviews with people who say yeah i know about it but i didn't think that it was that bad right it didn't sound like it that bad wow so my worry is that as buried as this was, how, how, um, how are we going to do better about teaching that going forward so that it doesn't start to fade like the Holocaust deniers yeah. are, are, are saying, you know, that the further we get away from the event and the fewer people that we have that were there and remember and can, you know, relate these stories... It's it's
0: going to evaporate into nothing forever, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, and we have th- and thank goodness for uh, the music and the musicians, you know, doing their part to make sure all of this stuff is is. Never forgotten. It always survives. One of the names that pops up in this CNN article, close to the top, is uh, Adolphus Hale Stork. I'm going to mm-hmm. read a little bit in his latest work, Tulsa, 1921. Pity these ashes. Pity this dust. With libretto by Herbert Woodward Martin, the story of those dark days is told by a young girl picking through the destruction and lamenting the extinguished hopes of a thriving, industrious Black community. What do you think about you know when we we talk about Mozart opera the these fantastical things and then we get into Verdi and, and Puccini and it gets a little bit more real but it's 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 still this fantasy thing um is is this the 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 content you're going to go in the opera house for we talk about trauma mm-hmm. right and and reliving trauma well, what what do you think staging the this sort of history in this way Um, does for the memory of the history is this something that folks are going to go out to see would you want to go out to see it
1: well this this it's interesting you asked me that because i was going to ask you something similar about you know the the composer reliving that right or or re-experiencing it you know and this is a months-long process compositions take sometimes right Mm -hmm. so can you imagine living in that every day for a months-long project yeah so where are we with that um Is it all right for a black composer to expose that pain in a
0: production like this? Let's just be real. At the end of the day, it's going to be mostly white people taking in this content because it's mostly white folks in the the opera house. If this is how they need to hear it, if this is how it connects, so be it. And I think Hale Stork understands that. We always talk about this multi-front battle when it comes to equity. Uh-huh. And I think this is Hale Stork's way of you know doing that for these folks. Well, uh, he, he was quoted in this article, I was moved by it. Uh, he says, Hale Stork, the survival of African Americans in this country is a story of survival. It deserves to be honored in the arts, on stage, in music. It's a noble story and it needs to be told. Mm-hmm. So despite the destruction of communities and uh, the oppression the black codes, the jim crow, the way the police treat black people now, you know, we we still manage. We still manage to create art at the top level. We still manage to thrive in many ways and um and and Hellstork is just saying that that is, you know, a part of that American story. So again, why mm-hmm. would why would you want to bury that if it's you know unless it's challenging to your sense of truth to your sense of what it means to be america that that whiteness and then challenging that further by taking this into the concert hall i i i, ugh, I i'm I'm mixed because I'm not ready to go back into the concert hall at all right i know I'm glad that this is happening, and it really excites me that um an avenue like CNN is paying attention to it.
1: Well, let me go back and answer the original question because once you hit on the fact uh, that the audience was key, then a hundred percent. You know, the the people that will be sitting there listening to the music are the ones that need to know the story. Yeah.
0: So it's great for them. I feel bad for the composer having to pull that pain every day. Yeah. Yeah it's a it's responsibility sometimes you know i i I won't speak for for a hell stork of course but you know a sense of duty mm-hmm. in whatever we do in this work sort of in my case over you know trumps uh for lack of a better term the those feelings of, of pain and and trauma and all that I'll maybe I'll bring that into my therapy session. We'll see. <laughs> Record it. the The woman who um <laughs> is uh who who premier pity these ashes the hell stork is Janai Bridges. Who it says here on the CNN article has been called the Beyonce of opera. I mean. What a put that on your Twitter bio Grammy Grammy who you know (laughs) Tony who I'm I'm the Beyonce of opera so as 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 affirmed by BET you know who else so anyway she she's out here doing um doing the good work um she premiered this piece of music a quote from her here it says what drew me was the storytelling and becoming a vessel to dive into these amazing stories they reflect history they reflect the most common and universal emotions tragedy death love joy heartbreak jealousy deceit this music is for everyone. That last Mm. sentence, Scott, this music is for everyone. What does that that make you think about? What's your your reaction to that idea? This music is for everyone? Yeah. I think it's bigger. I think it's bigger than even this piece of music. I I, I hear Miss Bridges saying in that this music, this opera music, opera, classical music, so-called classical music, this is for everyone. And And music being for everyone, that means the subject matter has to touch a little bit of everyone, has to engage everyone, has to be relevant to everyone. Mm -hmm. And this is. Even if we are just now learning about it, this is. And I think this is the exact direction that uh, so-called classical music has to go as as we're coming back outside. Not that it all has to be about trauma and how, you know, black folks have struggled. Because as, as Hellstork said, we've survived. But this music being for everyone, I think, means we have to do and see and hear more of this sort of thing. What do you think the rest of the program would look like to
1: really make it an event, make it an evening that you would go
0: and sit for? A Brahms concerto? No, maybe a Florence Price because, and then you can um, tie into that. Excuse me, the trauma that she and her family went through leaving Arkansas and going up to Chicago and, you mm-hmm. know, saying they have they managed to escape. But so many didn't. Or, you know, there, there's always ways to.
1: Do you think that in an instance like this, there's the need for the, the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down?
0: Um, That question is beginning to challenge me more and more. We all know that phrase honey attracts more flies than vinegar. vinegar right. Yep. So if if we gotta attract the flies, whichever way I hey I, hey you you brought it up. <laughs> no, I'm not calling anybody a fly, but no, I I, I guess that the the so called spoonful of sugar, if that's what it's gonna take, if if that's what it takes. So be it, because there's so many, as I mentioned before, there's so many places trying to e- continue to erase this history, erasing critical race theory, all all of this stuff. So if if a spoonful of sugar is what we have to do to protect this bit of mm. history from being gone forever, so be it. So be it. Did I already give oh, I gave this a, um, a sharp? Let me press my sharp button again. <laughs> give that a sharp. Thank you. And as we get into this uh, next accidental, I thought uh, we could actually hear. From uh, Miss Bridges. Um, here, this is a excerpt from a piece of music, um, also on the Tulsa subject, written by Daniel Bernard Romain. We talked a few weeks back about they still want to kill us. Uh, so, I, I, and you know, who decided not to sing it? Who chose not to sing it? And who did? Janai Bridges was one of the folks who did uh, feel oh, okay. comfortable with that. You remember that "God Bless America," "God Damn America," right, that whole right. thing. Anyway, so here's a little of uh, Janai performing a little bit of this as we get into this final accidental.
2: Burn it down, burn it all down.
0: Mm-hmm. She's got a great voice. Burn it down and burn it all down, mm. is what she said. We were kind of talking about that... Um, Yesterday, that idea of moving the proverbial house as opposed to and moving it to make room for others as opposed to, you know, burning it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They they talk, you know, people always talk to me about, well, it's not just about destroying it. It's about adding to an X, Y, and Z. If only the folks down there in Tulsa had had that idea, huh? To not just burn it all down. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it wouldn't have happened, right? Anyway, for this uh, final accidental... A part of me wants to give it a sharp, <laughs> but I've got to go ahead and press the flat button. <laughs> this is from, who is this from? This is from the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Longtime national arts leader retires amid accusations of hostile workplace and racial inequity. How should we fix this headline? Racial national retires amid accusations of hostile work. I don't know. What, what would you do? Do you have an idea? I I don't know. I think it tells the story. Arts leader accused of a hostile workplace
1: um, uh, sinks back
0: into the hedges. Oh, so, okay. I see what you're saying. I see. Yeah, I was kind of get to that. We have the retirement. Come on. Well, we we had the the apology tour that people go on. I feel like we get into the retirement tour. Mm. <laughs> let me read a little bit of this um again this is from the uh, washington post um it this says, is the part that kills me it says robert l lynch the influential leader of americans for the arts who has been on paid leave since december as his organization investigated complaints about racial inequity and a lack of diversity in the workplace has agreed to retire as its president and chief executive the board announced in a statement thursday for folks who um aren't uh, up on this sort of story so member of the uh, Triloquy family Kwani's Floyd has been keeping me updated on this long story short Americans for the Arts has been dropping the ball and we can talk about the bigger issues of how philanthropy mm-hmm. is really uh, dropping the ball in general I think even inside of its gates inside of its uh, organization folks were talking about racial inequity how the system is fucked up how Robert L. Lynch is is not acting right and um they have they finally you know gotten him out of there we can say i i think it's always interesting how we decide that people are retiring but let's face it they got him out of there i think when you drum up enough information when you drum up uh enough attention to a thing enough pressure enough pressure you're gonna have to do it. and and that has not always been the case but in this in this year of 2021 more and more people are beginning to be unafraid to really push until the change is made um and remind me of kwanis's podcast because she really pushes mm-hmm, yeah uh kwanis's podcast is called arts administration bitch let me let me let me let me get that because i think i got the title um only halfway right last time where's my phone talk uh, talk while i grab my phone Talk while you get your phone about you need to give me a little bit more warning when you do that. Well you said um the part that had you about this article was that he was on paid leave. Paid why leave. does why does that get you?
1: Um I would love to get in trouble and then sit home And, and do nothing mm-hmm. and, and get him a paycheck to come in before I retire. Because I've still got another fifteen, twenty years.
0: <laughs> Before I retire. So uh, by the way, okay, Kwani's podcast is Black Arts Admin Bitch Podcast. <laughs> so definitely go check that out. I'm actually gonna be a guest on that uh here in a couple of weeks. So definitely mm. go check that out. Um you say it's a it's something for Robert Lynch, you know, up there being a racist, as they say, and being on paid leave. Do you know how much he's getting paid? Do you know how much he was getting paid? That's um, the part. S- just shy of a million dollars. Just shy, of like something like nine hundred and twenty-two thousand dollars. In this article, they talk about in inside the investigations was looking at the PPP money um, after got Americans for the Arts, the um, emergency other emergency grants and things. But they wouldn't say if any of that money went toward his almost million dollar salary. Yeah, I so we're he- getting all these PPP loans that they they need it so that he can. You know, continue to drive whatever car he's driving.
1: It kind of makes me wonder if he gets a percentage or if he gets
0: a salary. What you mean? What What are you getting at? What because getting we just
1: at? talked about Joe Budden wanting to give a percentage and they were at, they were questioning, you know, well, percentage of what? Either way is too much. So is a million dollars a percentage or
0: is it a salary? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Good, great, great question. Either way, and either way, and it's sitting too much. home, sitting home with a Bag of Chips and your Netflix. Um, something else that I found interesting in this article, uh, they were talking about the, um, let me think for a second, we got to the pay, we were talking about the pay. Uh, scroll down a little bit. Maybe it'll um, Maybe it'll pop back into my head. Uh, some of the critics call for Lynch to resign immediately. No, scroll down a little bit more. Okay, here we go. Um, yeah, they're they're talking about how this PPP money went in, and um, after de- I'm reading from the article here, after's decision to not share the results of the investigation. So what specifically what people were uh, saying about okay. the uh, racism and, and all of that stuff uh, was criticized uh, by uh, uh, Caitlin Strokush, president and CEO of the National Performance Network, a group dedicated to racial and cultural justice. Caitlin said that total lack of transparency and disinterest in accountability is about as after as after can get. They are so steeped in their own sense of power that they would not think that this is egregious. I Mm -hmm. think this is something really important because we're also running out of time as we move forward with these organizations making their statements and then it's all fine. the The masses don't trust what those statements say. They don't trust these organizations. But as as it's uh, written here, arts organizations, large arts organizations that haven't had to be uh, held accountable for all these years, are just so used to their what they say is truth is is what goes that they don't even understand how not telling us what happened what came from this investigation they don't even understand why that's a bad thing
1: we've talked about this before too um, when we talked about uh, an organization's response to something like this and they feel like they're giving a satisfactory response or or uh, giving it in a way that they think will absolve them. Yeah. And instead, it just kind of knocks them down another foot in the hole they just dug for themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that that happens all the time. Yeah. Well... The moral of the, what's the what's the moral of the story for you we have someone in a very high position of power in the arts uh, I didn't mention it but it does say in the article um Robert Lynch was a part of the uh, transition team for I think Obama and Biden so you know the the arts arm of that so this isn't somebody just working a job this is somebody you know well well established in in the structure in the system yeah and was, he and he fell from power so there,
1: there was some Diplomatic job that he was up for, yeah. or, or being um, secretary of something over the arts. I yeah. believe I, f- I forget what it actually
0: was, but yeah, yeah, do that, that happened. Do, do you have a do you have a word of encouragement for folks who are working in hostile environments? Do you have a word? of warning for people who think they'll be able to slide under the radar what's your what's your general just you know wrap-up of, of this whole saga we've kind of been covering over the past I've, few months. I've
1: said it before
0: read it out loud before read the statement out loud before you press send yeah yeah for me um, I, I really want to shout out all of the people working uh, these jobs in a place that you feel like is oppressive I think it's so important to organize whether um, Formally, you know, with the union or not. Just make sure that the conversation is being had. The conversation is being had in confidence because, Mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about these corporate systems, when something slips out, people slip out. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, I, I hope this can be an example to all of us. Um, of how change can happen, I think a, a black man has uh, been taken charge since uh, Robert Lynch has been off the off the thing, and uh, he's going to continue on. Someone from the military, military so. man, yeah, retired
1: Army Brigadier General Nolan Bivens. Yeah, he's been uh, pinch hitting in the position since the guy's been at home in December since yeah. Lynch yeah. has been home. So,
0: well, everyone just stay in the battle stay in the battle and let this be an example it is possible no no part of this machine is too powerful to continue on um and that's that as we get into the second movement where we will take the second ending i'm going to talk about that here in a second a, yeah. a, a slight change for um uh, movement three i'm going to talk about um the the tune i have to pick is uh, one as performed by Michael Jackson. I wanted to transition with a a younger Michael Jackson performance, a tune called I Want to Be Where You Are. Do you know that one off the top of your head just by the title? It's this really great tune. I'm thinking, let me me press play. Is that a deep cut? It starts with um, some harpsichord. and Oh, there it is. And basically it's Michael Jackson just saying, look, I've been gone for a little bit. And now I'm back. I hope you're glad I'm back, because I'm glad to be back. That's how I feel for season three of Triloquy. So here's a little bit of this. I kind of want to keep it playing a little bit. What era is this? This is young Michael. This so is 70s? young Mike. Yeah, the album has got to be there. Hmm. I mean, you got that harpsichord, and <laughs> I want to. I want to get to the. Uh, I want to get to the hook. We can. We can talk over it while while it's getting there. Michael Jackson, just the young child doing all this musical stuff. It's full-grown folks who can't sing this way, and we had a we had a twelve-year-old singing this. <laughs> Listen. Anyway, we're in the second movement here where we are taking the second ending. So, what do I mean by the second ending? Yeah, what do you mean by that? In music, you have repeat bars, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes those repeats aren't, I, I forget the, the actual word for something without multiple endings, maybe a clean repeat. Or anyway, sometimes you go back and the end of that section you repeat is a little different so you can go on that's called taking the second ending so i wanted to rename the second movement taking the second ending because when i think about the music that over the week we may just repeat in our earbuds repeat around the house we're going back and we're going back and this is our opportunity to take that second ending and talk a little bit about why we were repeating it so much why we think it's an important tune why we want to share it with the folks so Mm. There you have it. Another season, another season three uh, update here. So uh, the tune I want to talk about is called People Make the World Go Round. Uh, As as you know, I'll, you know, smoke some weed and uh, listen to music as a part of my day and sort of do a thing. And if I hear a tune that I really love, I try to break it down. Try to get on the keyboard. Put it on my instrument. That happened with this tune. I was listening to listening to the uh, the Stylistics' Greatest Hits album nice. that I love so much. And I always stop. I think it's track twelve. I stop at because that track is "You Are Everything," and that's my favorite tune by the Stylistics. Mm. Um, but this day, this morning, I decided to just continue to let the record play, and it was a tune called People Make the World Go Round. Let me read a little bit about this, because there's some uh, younglings like me who may not know. This is from the Wikipedia. It says, People Make the World Go Round is a song written by Tom Bell and Linda Creed, originally recorded by the Stylistics and released in 1972. We're talking about music from the 70s. Here are a few of the opening lyrics. Trash men didn't get my trash today. Oh, why? Because they want more pay. Buses on strike want a." raise and fare so they can help pollute the air, but that's what makes the world go round, the ups and downs, the carousel I can go on, but you know music back then really speaking to the times Mm -hmm. and not shying away and doing it with swag at the same time, we aren't talking about uh, protest music that is just ugly or is is just lackadaisical, we're talking about stuff that gets me in my two-step here in the house, anyway I think the stylistics version of this tune is so important to hear especially for so-called classical people because the orchestration of it you have this is ready like somewhere is a score to this it's so mm-hmm. b- beautifully and lushly orchestrated so shout out to the stylistics um as was you know very common uh, back then and still today folks love to cover songs and flip songs i was on youtube and happened to hear the michael jackson version and as we were saying young michael killing it let's hear him uh Sing a little bit of this song. People make the world go round.
2: Teachers on strike, no more school today. They want more money, but the board won't pay. People. everybody's talking about ecology. The air so polluted that it's hard to breathe.
0: Even in that one, you have some a little bit of marimba in there under Michael, and you have mixed meter, mm-hmm. you have 4-4, 2-4, 4-4, or however they do it in the mm-hmm. score. Such a, a, a great example of what we mean, again, by decolonizing that phrase, classical music. We have all of your orchestral, we have all of your Western orchestral instruments there. We have a musical tradition, a sound that is foundational to America and exists in its creation at least nowhere else. That that soul sound, you know, is is there. Th- this is a classic comp composition, and like your Brahmses and your Mozart's, it's been performed and flipped over and over again, as we see here by by Michael Jackson. I can- I cannot wait to to go hear some sort of orchestral or or any live instrumental version of that incredible song with an incredible message and a performance of it there uh, by Michael Jackson that had me press and repeat. So that's my uh, that's how I took the second ending this week. So you know how Mozart
1: was prolific and talented right from an early age, and mm-hmm. his father took him out, much like Michael's father took him and the brothers out. Yeah, I've, so, I, yeah, I've had this discussion. Him, yeah. Oh,
0: okay, so I don't need to go down this path. Well, I mean, but but for the people who don't know, oh well, the comparison I, that, that yeah, people I made. was
1: I was just curious if um, if there's something there. Uh, About not getting a childhood, you know, because you're working and obviously look, it was paying off, you know, his, his talent and all of his work at a very young age was paying off. But did he have a crappy adult life because of that? You know, that's one of the things I wonder.
0: You know, there was some sort of song, maybe I can find it here quickly. uh, There was a song that Michael Jackson put out, "Where, Where Was My Childhood or... Or, oh, I thought you were gonna like say that. leave me alone. <laughs> that's a good that's a good one too. Yeah, I'm 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 looking at it right here. Um and this is uh, older Michael. Let me Have
2: you seen my childhood?
1: You don't have,
0: know this song? I don't. I'm
2: searching for the world that I come from, 'cause I've been looking around in the lost.
0: Anyway, and I'll put, I'll put that on the triloquy tracks playlist as well, but I think that's a good point. Sometimes I think about do we deserve to really have this music because I'm bopping to Young Michael and he didn't even get to do what a lot of children do. Mm. I think it's important to note that they were uh Jehovah's Witness, so Christmas and birthdays wouldn't have been a thing anyway. Wow. So it's not like the wow. fame, you know, did that, but I I think that is a, a an a very important thing to to note. I don't think I don't think their parents did the wrong thing because look at Look at what he did for the world. We can say the same thing about um, my fave, Beyoncé. You know, mm-hmm. she's been on the circuit since a very little girl. Sure. And look what she sure. has done for the world. I, so, I don't know. No,
1: I'm not trying to... I, I'm, I'm just saying it's an interesting correlation. Yeah. And also, I wonder about child prodigies. you know, getting... Uh,
0: ground up in this business before they're even a teenager yeah sometimes not even um child prodigies just the think about the 14 year old pianist who is just you know Mm -hmm. bleating fingers at the keyboard to get into tanglewood which we'll talk about later or or juilliard or whatever so there's Mm a there there are degrees to that everywhere everywhere well this kind of dovetails in
1: with the music that I was listening to over and over and over mm-hmm. last week, because I, I I get, I have to mention this again, that as we record this, this is the last day of mental health awareness month. yep And, uh, last, the 24th was the anniversary of my mother's death. Mm. And with everything that had been going on, um, and all the projects that I have going on around the house, I forgot about it. And when I remembered all of us, it, it hit me like, uh, an elevator fell on me or something. You forgot
0: about the anniversary of your- um,
1: Of my mother's death. And so then when it reminded me what I did to cope with it was, um, you know, how Chris Traeger on parks and recreation would, uh, ride his bike or do whatever task he could so that he didn't have to stop and think about his own crippling depression or whatever. So he was constantly running at a high rate, right? Well, I went out and dug and then cemented eight post holes throughout the course of the day on Tuesday. You were at it. Right. And then I came inside and you know I'm thinking about mom and you know Radar had his surgery and you know mm-hmm. he's getting old and he's going through a transition and and I got started getting emotional about that and this song by Irving Berlin came to mind called What Will I Do? And in the the version that Nat King Cole does it's the great jazz standard, you know, sort of the uh, the all American sound book, you know, with some nice guitar there too. Yeah. But the way that he sings it makes you even feel off kilter. It sort of limps, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Now, I spent that night listening to every version of it that I could find on, mm-hmm. online. And here's something interesting. Whenever I listen to a man sing it, I can get through it. But if I hear a woman singing it, like Judy Garland, her version, I, I'm in bits. Or, right? or the famous B. Arthur, you know? That's uh, the one that really got me when... Uh, she sang it. That was, that was pretty amazing.
2: And I am blue. What will I do? Very nice.
0: So what will you do when fill in the blank is gone away and all you have, what's the lyric, uh, dreams of, uh, all yeah. I have is dreams of you that won't, won't come, come true. true. What, you know? what will I do with just a
1: photograph to tell my troubles to? Yeah. Um, I think the answer is right there in the song. You ask, "What? What do I do? What am I going to do in this situation?" And then I started learning the key. I started learning the chords on guitar, like a simplified version. Yeah. And so now it's kind of me and Radar's song. I've been singing it to him, uh, playing it on. And you know, he sits and listens. He's so attentive and so polite he is <laughs> so um, that was the when one that I just I'm kept going back to the last several days
2: with only dreams of you that won't come true what a lie
1: And I, actually, so
0: nice. and I actually think that scene from Golden Girls is uh, a great testament to what you were talking about. Some, some One of my mental health things, keeping up work, keeping up work to not have to you know, face some of that depression. That song, that performance took place in the midst of a bar where you have uh, Rue McClanahan's character. I, 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 I can never um, remember, but Rue McClanahan you know on, okay on the show uh running around and being the character she is she grabbing all the the guys.
3: <laughs> so yeah.
0: you know in in the midst of that you know you have those emotions and when i think about the golden girls specifically when i think about folks you know going into their golden age and having all of those memories man that song really that song really does mm. something
1: it does and uh i, I love the fact that after processing it and spending all those days going through all the different uh kinds of crying <laughs> that now i can i can listen to it and be okay and i think that that's sort of a, a metaphor for this situation overall that uh once you get through the the uneasy seeing uh, the uneasy portion then maybe you
0: will know what to do yeah so i'm hopeful anyway yeah. Um, well, something I'm thinking about right now to transition us into this third movement, you talk about the different types of crying, you know, what'll I do when you're gone and all these ideas. Uh, a few, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the one year anniversary of the death of George, uh, George Floyd. Floyd. And our, our personal experiences are one thing being here in the Twin Cities this past year during it all. I'm sure there's nothing that we can say that compares to the feeling of the family, to have no, to have their, their loved one gone. So and in to, such a way. So through that, there have been so many people um, put, coming up to bat to help them, to donate money, to facilitate things. And one of those folks was a rapper named Lil Baby. I mm. know you know Da Baby.
1: I do.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you know Lil Baby. I don't. <laughs> so... Um, among you know as, as I said among all the folks trying to help out Lil Baby the rapper Lil Baby um, has been out here um, raising money um, facilitated a, a way for the family to travel to do different things when the family went to the White House on the anniversary to talk to Joe Biden Lil Baby was there because you know he was, was a part of that whole movement along with the lawyers along with the yeah. advisors and, and all of the family I think it really just shows how we uh, traditionally especially in this field of so-called classical music have taken hip-hop and hip-hop music and put it in this corner as something that is violent or whatever. But we have folks in hip-hop really coming up to bat and doing what other folks won't, putting this money to work and, and helping us try to um, enact some change. Lil Baby is among those folks. Um, today's guest, Dr. Darrell Cooper, we talk a little bit about the importance of hip-hop, um, what is black music again uh, for June, uh, being Black Music month and um and, and what all of this can mean for the next generation will we really start respecting this art form teaching this art form the history and the stories behind it and uh working toward liberation which um you know mm-hmm. we get into so to get um to get us into my conversation with dr Darrell cooper i thought i might play a little music by a little baby okay <laughs> Again, this is not the baby. Shout out <laughs> I'm, to the baby. I'm
1: paying attention.
0: <laughs> this is Lil baby um, uh, speaking to the moment. Music again with the uh, people make the world go around. We're talking about uh, 1970s. That music was speaking to the moment. Um, Lil baby's music speaks to the moment as well. This is uh, a little bit of a tune of his called "Social Distancing." Let's take a listen. Six so
3: like the straight, cook them for Hand and CT. I told her to fly and she's scared of the virus. I sent her a private gig. I made four hundred dollars off each of these pound line tripping is gonna be a good deal. Solomon driving while I got my hands on a chop on am keeping my eyes in the review. um America, I mean, I, I feel that a lot of that, you know, this this idea of giving back to the community is really what hip hop was birthed out of to begin mm-hmm. with. You know, whether it was a, a block party or uh, you know, a cookout. You know it really was about the community coming together uh, in, in celebration of uh, creativity and ingenuity and the beauty of the culture i think you know fast forwarding to today we, we do see uh some recording artists that have some very uh, philanthropic elements to what it is that they do you know, from Nipsey Hussle to Jaden Smith, you know they all mm-hmm. have found ways to be able to give back with not only their talent but also with their their time and their finances to communities that, um, you know, maybe not only listen to their music but uh, would also like assistance in other ways that 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 makes sense. And so I'm all for it. With that being said, I would never expect uh, or hope that any uh, artist or person would push something that they didn't honestly and truly believe in and mm-hmm. true and honestly and truly stand for. So like, you know, this, like these performative, uh, like Dr. Terry Watson co- calls it performative wokeness, but like these performative, uh, measures, these performative allyship, like measures to, to, to do things just to keep up appearances. I don't think it's ever really helpful, but, um, if it's genuine and it's authentic, and you're leading with a passion and you're focused on impact. And I'm, I'm all for uh, artists using their platforms for for causes that they sincerely care about.
0: That's an interesting concept because that performative activism when it comes to uh, these these Black artists who have all this money, I mean, it seems like even from that can be something positive. If they're performatively donating money to this family or, or this community, that community has still been positively
3: impacted, right? Absolutely. I think- I think it kind of starts to fall more on like a you know if if the way I kind of look at the movement like whatever that movement is for 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 you know individual people if your liberation isn't tied up to mine 110% then I actually don't want your support mm. because your your vibe will attract your tribe uh, like I I have no doubt about that And with, and so with that being said, there'll be some people that you, you, you will, uh, bring in and attract along the way. And then there'll be some people that, you know, that maybe don't go to the next level or to the next journey with you, but, you know, doing it for doing it's sake at the end of the night, you know, you may be the one like having to question your, your actions on why you're doing these, you know, certain things, but, um, i mean i guess there is something to be said for guilt money right (laughs) i mean that is definitely a thing that's out there especially i mean philanthropy is built on that like literally um and so that is a whole thing but um you know especially when you start talking about like philanthropy and white supremacy culture we really have to really interrogate that and go okay well what what are you really feeling guilty for but uh would, you know i don't don't know i always uh, err on the side of encouraging people to stay as real as possible and so it's like you know if you really care about it, you know, do it. If you re- sincerely care about it, do it. And if you don't, find something that you do, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah, you use that word liberation. And I think we sometimes take for granted what that means or what that would look like. We talk about it theoretically all the time. You said you need somebody to be 110% tied up in your liberation. How do you define that? How do you define that
3: liberation? I know. So for me, I believe it's liberation to and liberation from simultaneously. Mm. Mm. Right. Uh, And I also believe that like we as black people, you know, we hear a lot now about Afrofuturism and like this idea of black futures. Right. But blackness not only is the future, but it has also been the past and it is also the present. So this idea of liberation and it being tied to that you know, the the moves the moves to make, right? Or the decisions to make It's you know, you have to take into account the moment that we're in. You know, it is funny because you opened up uh, talking about more like contemporary or current musicians. And it is most definitely like the moment that we are in, but then it's also what we're doing now and the ripple effects that is gonna have generations and generations and generations down. And if you're only making decisions you know, regarding the fierce urgency of now based off of the present and not thinking about how this work is going to ripple, yeah. um, then it is a very short-sighted de- uh, decision-making process when, when you start to think about this idea of liberation. Because liberation for us today may not be what is liberated, you know, a hundred years from now, you know, because hopefully as time goes on, there's more access, there's more opportunity. So what what are we doing today to provide that for someone else and I feel like, you know, this idea. too many times, you know, and this this is really where uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and the idea of intersectionality really kind of came from to begin with is because sometimes it wasn't quite a, a women's issue. And sometimes it wasn't quite a black issue, but it was most certainly a black women's issue right. when it kind of came to some of these things. And so right. really thinking and then now today to even add, you know, uh, additional context to it. Uh, what about the liberation of trans black women exactly. you know, or trans women of color? So what are we doing to put, what are we putting in place to make sure that, you know, our idea of, of liberation is really a place where everyone is free and not just a place where uh, you have certain privileges that uh, are, are resembling that of the dominant uh, culture. Yeah, those those intersectional conversations can be so challenging because
0: I'm rooting for everybody black, and as a black queer person, there are certain experiences I have within our community. You know, th- th- there's a lot to that. You you um you your words always get me thinking about other things when you use the word generation generational. Um, you're making me think about our last conversation. You really left me shook. Uh, I believe you said something along the lines of it takes seven generations to change the thinking of a people. And when you said that to me, I started thinking about myself and I think about how I am six generations from the plantation. It's really shorter than that, but six generations from as far back as we can reach, which, you know, of course, intersects With the plantation, can you speak to that uh, a little bit more? You know, everybody wasn't in on our previous conversation. Just that concept of seven generations to change the thinking of a people.
3: Absolutely. So that that's really kind of stems from like uh, indigenous wisdom. So Mm. uh, uh, cultures that were native to America before you know uh, settlers started to show up. But this idea of seven generations to to heal. Is really what they 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 say about that, uh, and to tr- be able to transform and and it you know if you start tracking it, we are now in that seventh generation and have been now for a little while. So mm-hmm. what you'll probably consider uh, millennials um, are kind of the, are that seventh generation. Yeah. And in that, I think what we see is like the the advent and the support of technology that is helping to sort of advance some of these things. So like knowledge sharing, uh, our ability to, to to find out about historical elements of, you know, what, what you were even just talking about now, like a genealogical roots and being able to trace yeah. that even more. Uh, the dig- digital age in a lot of ways has you know, created a knowledge and a resource sharing that has helped to accelerate this learning and this healing process that kind of needs to happen to get to the next, to get to the eighth generation and, um, and ninth and, you know, 10th and so forth and so on. And the idea is the, the energies from seventh generations back is now what we are feeling to be able to. Uh, live in like sort of this this sort of a, a place of of, of abundance uh, versus this more sort of scarcity mindset that they may have had to take on because of the circumstances at that time um, and so it in a lot of ways you know it, it's funny like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I see these memes it's like uh, our ancestors would, would be flipping tables over that we're asking for seats at you know uh-huh. yeah and yeah. I think about it like, or, or it's shirts that say like "I am my ancestors wildest dream." And I, and 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 I think about that sometimes. I'm like, uh, okay, like I see that, but I'm thinking, I'm, I'm really thinking of like some 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 people. Like, what what would Harriet Tubman do today? Ooh. you know, what would Fannie Lou <laughs> Hamer do today? Yeah. you know, um, Nina Simone even more contemporarily, right, you know, right, she'd right. be on here cussing. She would be on TV cussing. <laughs> right the, the world wouldn't know what to do with something or or if nina simone had a reality show <laughs> and people really got to see what you know what her life was like or rita yeah. franklin had a uh you know reality show at that time you know pay me pay me in cash every mm-hmm. time and so, had a pocketbook with her and had a pocketbook <laughs> with her and and so i think about that and i go you know they what they were able to do with what they were given at that time was so uh, critical and important to set the groundwork for us to be able to make the moves and 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 do the work that we do now which is all the more reason to to do as much and you know to to be as creative and to to you know to be to resist when when um when called upon to make it that much easier for for the next generation to be able to live a more full life you know it's this idea of um uh uh uh, robin kelly calls uh like freedom dreaming Mm -hmm. you know and that and that's really what it is it's like you know what really is that wildest uh, imagination or or wildest reality that you can can imagine and see and then then how can you how can you create it and so many of us are living that wildest dream that
0: wild imagination while others of us are still fighting still struggling I, I can't help but to often think about the disparities within black communities you know we have families who you know folks my age who are third maybe even fourth generation college graduates and have established uh you know different things over the generations and then we have folks black folks who are who are still kept out who are still not quite there and you know uh making that generational turnover just last longer and longer what are your what are your ideas as far as closing that gap how do we get more black people on the same page in the same position to really push forward in this uh in this uh fight for liberation that we're going toward we can't be liberated if we aren't educated we can't be liberated if we don't have access and so many of us do while so many more of us still don't i I agree
3: um in in some ways like i think of um I think of like the the Tulsa massacre, right? Um and I like think if of that like, had
0: survived, right, like the right.
3: generations of black wealth that could have been. That that could have been, but but also the different representations of what education looks like, what success looks like, what community looks like, what building looks like. I think to me, in a, you know, when I when I envision a fully you know, liberated world or society is not uh, necessarily one in which uh, everyone goes and gets all of the same things all at the same time or or even in the same ways. Mm -hmm. But it's the access to be able to live in the way in which you have imagined. So for some, everybody's not going to go and get a doctorate. And and to them, that's not necessarily what they see as success is being able to define themselves mostly by predominantly white institution standards of whether or not you have educationally uh, reached some level of attainment. Yeah. You know, we have uh, college dropouts who have gone on to become billionaires by starting tech companies, you know, or, or I mean, definitely multimillionaires. Yeah. So I, I, I think the the freedom dreaming aspect in that is, is being being able to one get proximate to the person like so you know a, a person that may not necessarily be feeling like they're living as imagined as they would want to be and finding out what that is for them you know and it's because so much so much of what we define ourselves by and defines our success by is one the media and what it kind of shows us and tells yeah. us uh, but also like our expectations and like and what we're looking at other people and what they're doing and what they have you know and it's like Sometimes if we really kind of looked at what it was that we had, we would be like, oh, you know what? This is not because there's definitely there's definitely someone less fortunate out oh, there. Yeah. But I think a fully liberated society is one in which, regardless of what that dream is for you, you there is a pathways and avenues for you to be able to go and get it. And, and to your point, that that is the piece that that we know is missing. And it's not just an American, you know, issue that we're dealing with, it's a global issue that we're mm-hmm. dealing with, but it's actually access to those things um you know and we still we are still right here in, in America you know and Flint still ain't got clean water right you know right so how we how we gonna how we how are we talking about you know going to University of Michigan getting it and, and you ain't even have you don't have drinking water mm-hmm. so there's some like basic stuff that we we really have to fix in order to like you know build this house up you know because right now the the foundation is faulty in so many ways so when you talk about, again, that change in
0: thinking, us living in that seventh generation, what changes in thinking uh, have have you seen? Have, have you seen a, a a shift across the culture, across Black communities that might get us, get the car moving in that direction?
3: You know, it's it, it's so interesting that you asked that question. I feel like uh, one conversation that keeps coming up um, more and more uh, for me lately is, it is about mindset. Uh, and it's about uh, a scarcity mindset versus more of an abundant mindset. And I think what what I'm starting to discover uh, as I you know go and meet different people who you know like yourself, who I, I I admire the the work, and um, you know, I see you know the 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 passion that is going in and, and also the the good that is being spread as a result of it, those type of individuals usually kind of have a, a, a at least like a similarity like one like if there's like a thread that i've kind of noticed in like which is being around some really dope people i'm yeah. just going to be honest is that they have an abundant mindset when it comes to what giving back their talent back out into the world so whether that's you know dancers whether that's singers um whether that's uh, actors whether that's musicians that want and desire to share that talent uh with the world um And and giving back in that abundant way has has proven to be a thing. Now, the other aspect of that is actually to realizing that there's enough space for everybody and everybody's talent once you get up there. I feel like that's the other sort of side of that coin. That's that scarcity piece that some people still kind of take with them along their route. Uh, And that's the piece that I think gets a lot of people hung up because, um, you know, and and that can be a hard mindset to break. I get it. Like, I really get it. Um, but there really is, and and your gift will make room for you. Well, if anyone has
0: given gifts, that abundant mindset, that that giving, giving something musical to the world, I feel like it's Black folks. If you just globally, not only you know here in the United States, I, as you know and to that, as we're here in uh, Black Music Month now, I often affirm, I always affirm, certainly on this show, that all American music is Black, if you just really come down children. to the root of it. All American music is Black music. Now, with that being said, and with that understood, how do you define Black music more specifically in the context of 2021? If someone's talking about Black music, what are you thinking about?
3: In the context of 2021? Sure. Uh, any, I, I would say anything that's got a little bop to it because if we, if we if you know what I mean to put it in the most common terms I can yeah. anything that's a vibe because if you go back to for real syncopa- syncopated uh, rhythm you have to take it back to what you know the drums you know what I mean you know they were would- <laughs> so uh, anything when if you listen to something that got a little bop I don't care I don't care what they uh putting on top of it to call it you know um uh pop music or you know yep. whatever whatever it is if you listen to something with a little bop in it then you need to thank uh black musicians specifically uh for creating that and uh and putting that vibe out into the universe because yeah th- that that bop that little heartbeat that you feel that is black music you know and now it, it obviously there's different genres and, you know, mm-hmm. some have taken that bop to a new level, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, and, and some will still come along and, and remix that bop and take it to a, uh, an even newer level. Right. But, um, but yeah, that 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 understanding that that soul music, that that to me, that is black music. I appreciate that affirmation because yes, we can talk
0: about, you know, the William Grant Stills and the Margaret Bondses and, you know, co- going up a few more decades. I remember getting into Lenny Kravitz because he was black, you know, and that's you know, not necessarily what a lot of people would call black music, but he's black and he's playing music. So, but, you know, so w- with all of that, I appreciate the affirmation of, of that bop, as you say, that vibe, hip hop, because for so long, I think it was just sort of sidelined, despite how successful it was. It was coined as this dangerous thing, as this thing that's not really music. But as it's continued to develop over these 40 years, we see that it is the music of the world, at least right now in this moment. Did you ever think that this Black music, this hip hop would be what it is
3: today, this global movement? Uh, I mean, I know it's like one of those things. Um, I mean, not, not to you know, place any limitations or anything on it, but there's definitely some things that have happened since like I had originally started my dissertation two years ago that I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like this yep. obviously this is the moment to really be studying it and like learning, as it's in a growth phase. Um, but like I-, I look at something like breaking now being a sport in the Olympics, you know, like n- mm-hmm. who-, who knew hip hop would make it this far? Yep. You know, so I look at something like that and go, I I, you know, y- yeah, okay, I didn't see that one coming right so in that and it's not to uh, underestimate the genre it's just what we're seeing is more possibilities as it ages and grows and and becomes uh more accepted on a global stage just how limitless it it really is or how limitless it really can be you know we we look at you know although you know no one is perfect but we look at uh, an artist like jay-z who's really been able to kind of show how you can age within the game right. and still be able to, you know, uh, stay ahead of it. And, and, you know, after so many years and, and make additional moves and like, just continue to build, um, you know, so people are just now starting to to lay certain roadmaps that kind of show what, what all the possibilities really are, you mm-hmm. know, or LL Cool J who really is still around, you know, it's still very relevant. Um, you know, and then we we just got uh, the Universal Hip Hop Museum right. right in the Bronx. You know, I think they just officially broke ground this year in 2021, although they were doing like some soft opening stuff. You know, and so it's it it's really in, in, in so many ways. It's really just getting started and expanding. But yes, I'm 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 learning very quickly that anything is really possible.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're at one of those critical junctures where as hip hop and other black music continues to evolve, we have to begin to really take those hard records concerning where we came from. You mentioned the um, the hip hop museum up in New York. I think they're uh, working on something down in uh, at Atlanta as well. As I think about you know hip hop history and, and what we should remember, I often find myself coming to the question, well, where should we start or where should a person who wants to learn about hip hop start? A lot of people that I really respect whose um, scholarship that I honor say that Wu-Tang is the, is the start. That is where you should start listening to that music and then branch off from there. Do, do you agree with that? Do you think Wu-Tang is a, a great starting point for the person who knows nothing about hip hop but wants to learn everything?
3: Uh, I mean... They, they are definitely a great place to start. Um, I'm a little bit more open and flexible. I feel like, you know, you you will vibe with the right artist and that, that the right artist is going to open up gateway. Like, mm-hmm. you know, hip hop can be a, a gateway drug into other like, you know, just dope stuff. You know, it's, it's just a dope wormhole that you can go down. Um, you know, we often are going to encounter it at at like young or younger ages, you know, Mm -hmm. just depending on where you are, where you're growing up. And so I think, you know, we had this, we talked about this during one of our first conversations, you know, we both grew up in the South and and at a certain time period, you know, uh, in the nineties, you know, late nineties and one group that was huge at that time. Uh, was uh 36 mafia especially oh, yeah. like, like southeast region. 901 Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you know, being in Alabama, I definitely knew who Three Six Mafia was and I definitely used to bump their album. And uh I remember When the Smoke Clears was one of the first albums that I could listen to from the intro all the way through to the outro. And we're talking about like 20 something tracks and then yeah. but like fire. And I was like, whoa, this is insane. So you know we we're gonna kind of encounter it at a state like we and, and this is the thing that's, this is the thing. that's so glad you asked this question. This is the thing I've been kind of like uh, saying when I've been going on doing like uh, guest lectures or something like mm-hmm. that, when people are like, so why'd to, like, like, why did you choose hip hop to like study? Like, And so my thing is like, you know, I didn't really choose hip hop. Hip hop chose me and it's true. And so it's it's going to choose you. Like the right artist or the right song, the right thing, it's going to choose you. And when it chooses you, you're going to know, you're going to be like, oh, this 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 artist just chose me to like, you know, be their entryway into it to break me into like this, this 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 um uh, boundless like uh genre yeah. yeah and i completely agree with that hip-hop choosing you
0: because being being black and being immersed in that, there's always going to be something that you gravitate to, something you vibe with, as you said. For me, over the years, it's it's really been the women in hip hop. When I think about some of my earliest hip hop memories, those Saturday mornings where the uh, where the TV is just on the music videos, I'm thinking about Queen Latifah. I'm Ooh. thinking about U.N.I.T.Y. I'm thinking about uh, Just Another Day, and you know all of that sort of thing. Of course, fast forward to now, you mentioned Three Six Mafia. When I listen to Megan the Stallion. All I hear is that Southern in mm. uh, the impact gangsta, in influence. Gangsta movements. boo, gangsta boo, La Chat. All all those people. It's 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 really strong. And um, yeah, I, I agree that we all gravitate uh, to to different things. Who is who is today's blueprint in your mind? Of you know, we can we can list off all of these names of the greats. You mentioned Hove. You know, we said Queen Latifah, and you know, we can mention Lauren and all these folks. Wu Tang. Who is today's uh, and I hate to frame it this way but I will who's today's Mozart who's today's Beethoven when we're talking about hip hop mm. from your perspective of course because this is a barbershop
3: argument really at the end of the day but <laughs> I know right it's like it's like top top one dead or alive right right yeah <laughs> um you know that's that's an interesting question if I had to if I had to really think about just somebody who I felt really encompassed you know, living through dual pandemics and like just making a yeah. way out of nothing and surviving it um i would actually have to say uh cardi b honestly Ooh, J- just yeah. sort of just sort of thinking about what uh y- you know like uh, hip hop as entrepreneurship mhm yeah and, and hip hop as uh, leveraging the best tools of the time to make it work. You know, they were they were finding They were, you know, getting turntables and being like, you know, things that they couldn't even afford. Hey, this right. is our opportunity during this, you know, blackout. Let me go grab, you know, so using the technology of the day, social media uh, or, you know, television to really be able to put your voice out there and to and to really be able to move and influence culture. And I would say that that's probably one of the and which is so interesting, too, because, you know, we both know the the troubling uh, history hip hop has had with women. Yeah. You know, and present, troubling present to an extent, too. Right. Right. Even more so. uh, Hello, Megan the Stallion. You know, Um, so it's, it's 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 been a troubling history. But at the same time, I think if if you if you look at patterns of how to take what, no matter where it is that you're coming from how to take what it is that you've been given and and build a life for yourself within, you know, uh, hip hop that that's probably one of the best uh, modern examples that I, that I can think of. Yeah. Hip hop um and other black music is
0: not only uh, a means of realizing this imagination that uh, we've we've talked about. It's the realization, it's the evolution of what is most classic, classical to the United States to America, we you know talk often about the Negro spiritual being that seed, being that foundation. You know, uh, aside from uh, you know what Indigenous people codified, there's there's nothing else that was really born here musically other than that. So as that evolved into the blues and into the jazz and all these other stuff, you hear those uh, motifs in all sorts of genres, and we finally get to hip hop. I can't help but to consider hip hop a part of that classic tradition a classical music and I know a lot of people would are still just really confused by that assertion But that's just how I see it. I see hip-hop as American classical music. Is that a reach? Is that inappropriate? What do you think about that? Uh,
3: no, I I don't I don't think that's that's a reach at all. I think um I think I think you're you're right uh, Right there with it because I do think that hip-hop. I think you can draw a direct line from hip hop today, all the way back to, uh, you know, uh, griots and story circles, <laughs> you know, yeah, even I mean? before the spiritual, e- even saying. before, even yeah. before the spiritual, <laughs> I think there's connections even before the spiritual, especially when you think about the drum, you know, um, it's, I think it's connection, but, but especially when you get to the spirituals, Oh my goodness. There's this, uh, there's this book, uh, by Thomas Weber, uh, deep, like the river, mm. right. <laughs> And basically it's it's called uh, Deep like the River Lessons in the the Slave Quarters. So it just talks about it, it has different uh, songs and hymns that the slaves would come up with like and the enslaved black people would come up with while they were out in the fields working or what you know uh, during off and in between times. And so and when you start to read uh, some of these, what you start to see, like and some of it they're like, you know, even making fun of the slave master like yeah. in the songs, you know, talking about old oh, Charlie dressed like this, you know, like different stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they were roasting the slave master. Right. And and so it's like, do you do you know do you know the the swag that it takes? The Ooh, yes. the, the, the 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 bravioso that it takes to be an enslave people and still look and go, if I had what you had. I would still do it better than you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That and is that a powerful to, idea. And that to me is hip hop. And so, yeah, there is definitely there's definitely ties to it there. But uh, but yeah, there's a direct line that goes all the way back. Yeah, hip hop, you know, it's for real. It's a for real movement. And it's it's, you know, it's not going anywhere anytime soon.
0: As educators and other folks try to connect with communities that uh, they haven't always, I feel like hip hop or hip hop adjacent things is that bridge. You know, matching hip hop with history, matching hip hop with you know the orchestra or whatever that that just being that that conduit um, is is that appropriate? Is is that something that we need to be wary of? And I'll I'll tack this on the last time we talked you put me on to this book for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too you know I haven't I haven't gotten into the book yet but just reading the the preface and stuff it, it, it gets these thoughts it gets these thoughts going is that is that a cheap way in I, I, I know we can talk about cultural appropriation but there has to be something in there as far as pressing the needle forward, getting so-called classical music to more folks and using hip-hop, what we know, what is us, as that as that bridge, as that conduit.
3: I, I absolutely agree. And yes, uh, shout out to uh, Dr. Christopher Emden. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is an uh, OG in the game for sure, uh, associate professor at Columbia and an author for White Folks Who Teach in the Hood. He was also on my dissertation committee, which was uh, an amazing honor, um, you know, Uh thank you, you know, for allowing me to touch the hem of that garment. Uh but yeah, I agree. You know, but it's it's that, and then there's the other part of it too that I think about sometimes. It's how much energy are we going to put into the educating of other? Mm -hmm. Right. And 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 how much of it And before we get
0: too far. Uh, let's clear that up. When you say how much time we are going to put into educating the other, are you talking about black folks educating
3: non-black people? Well, what are you, what are you getting at there? Yes. So that, that would be uh, black people educating non-black people, especially when it comes to like our, you know, our culture or, um, you know, traditions and things like that. It's like how much energy are we putting into that and how much energy uh, is or should be going into building up our own institutions building up our own uh tables you know for lack of a better word in order to do the the work and the things that we're doing you know especially because a lot of it like i think about uh, and now as a bridge and i'm thinking about it like this idea of a bridge absolutely yes we can create frameworks um that can then go to uh different uh, school districts that they can uh implement and use and we should be doing that you know especially to get us to where where it is that we need to go Ah, uh, but it is definitely uh, a means to an end, uh, and it is not in and of, of itself the end. I think, I think to me, the the end goal is is living in a a situation where uh, a, a a young person of color their, uh, intuitional knowledge is valued equally, or if not more so than institutional knowledge. So what, what it is that they've picked up at a school or, you know, at a, at a job site or work, like what they, what they come into that, that, you know, being birthed, especially out of like sort of this hip hop culture. Yeah what they're coming into the classroom with with that you know what where's the genius at in that because if they can if they can memorize all these like little baby lyrics Mm -hmm. but they're not but they're not remember uh memorizing that monologue in class what is that right and and shouldn't that be equally as valued uh, you know or if not highlighted even more so what is that intelligence there and
0: i feel like you know (laughs) we take for i'm thinking about you know, growing up and my mom saying, "Oh, y'all know every word to that rap song, but I bet you can't say your Bible verse or whatever." You know, I think. exactly. Or
3: your ABCs, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> well, not they can't say the ABCs, but can rap. But anyway, <laughs> I, th- that that's
3: interesting. you will be me. surprised, especially with these mumble <laughs> rap songs now. I, I show I show this video sometimes of this two year old uh, named Khalil who just kind of goes off on the flow uh, with like him and like this older. Yes, I, I should pull it up right now and like uh I'll send it to you though. He just go he's just going off. You can't understand a word that he's saying. But <laughs> you, you see him right in on the pocket on the beat. He's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He's right on beat. But yeah, I was gonna say Is they like, making hip hop <laughs> hip hop for the nursery. They're going <laughs>
0: There's I guess my point is there is something to that. It's not like kids are just sitting down just trying to memorize this stuff. There's something about it that Absolutely. that really connects. I love, you know, anytime I'm in a public space, at least before the pandemic, anytime I was in a public space and um chicken heads came on, for example, you know, getting back to uh, Project Pat and, and all that stuff, you can always find the folks in the room who can rap, myself included, who can rap every single lyric. <laughs> <laughs> after all of these years it's probably been tw- more than 20 years but it's it's still ingrained so i think you know it's important to make the point that it's more than just trying to make these superficial connections there there has to be something cognitive there about it for it to stick like that for it to be up and stuck as as cardi as cardi b has been uh, saying lately
3: A- absolutely and and honestly that is the for real key to, to it like if you're gonna do it don't just you know, oh, you know, I want to be a cool, like, especially if we're talking about educators, right? Mm-hmm. Don't just go, oh, you know, I want to be a cool teacher, so I'm going to play hip-hop as the students come into my room. And now we're about to make them all learn from this Eurocentric, uh, you know, textbook. <laughs> right. Like, that, <laughs> like we're not going to rap Shakespeare. <laughs> that some some so that's still creating that cognitive dissonance there and 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 so like the the title of my dissertation was actually called uh, socially distant and mm-hmm. that's exactly the reason why because you know when I, all this stuff you know uh came up came about with the uh the coronavirus pandemic and then there were like social distancing rules i kind of looked at that and i said you know it's not really all that different than sort of the school's policies when it comes to, you know, especially young black people, like within these spaces, they've been pretty socially distant. I mean, they they, intellectually or institutionally, they've been close, you know, one in proximity, but also in like indoctrination culture. But as far as like, actually like the social element of it, like there was a, there's a for real disconnect between home community school and in a lot of places still. And so that, that is the key. It, it, it has to be uh, integrated into the things that you do. Like um, you're in a math class and, you know, you're, you're, you're in a geometry class and what you're looking at is like scale, you know, and, and or an ar- architecture.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, instead of just showing them like a building that's casting a shadow and then go, you know, figure out, I don't know, it's a conference or whatever it is, you know, wh- why couldn't you also do the same thing with like a wall and a sketch pad, you know, looking at, like, maybe graffiti art. Yeah. And and thinking about what scale it takes to be able to blow this, you know, drawing on this paper up into, like, a 30-by-30-foot wall, you know, because doesn't it take the exact same skills to be able to do that? Yeah. So, yeah, play the hip-hop music as they come into this geometry class, but then don't just go and start showing them, like – you know little images of like you know people trying to figure it out that does not represent them in any sort of way so and and
0: and even the content I I can't remember the rapper who who did it now but I'm thinking about a, a a lyric talking about something like um whipping up pies that's 360 you know there's a there's a lot there you know, right. there's a lot of cultural there, and there's some geometry yeah. uh, <laughs> in, in, in there as Fast. well. Um, so as a as a newly um, affirmed doctor, doctor of education, <laughs> I know that you have a lot of work ahead of you, but I'm sure a lot of that is um, continuing a lot of the work that you've already been doing, including um, the Cultural Innovation Group. How about you uh, tell the, the folks a little bit about what that is and what your plans are for uh, Cultural Innovation Group moving forward?
3: Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that opportunity. So yeah, that's a, a boutique consulting agency that I founded in 2018. Uh, I started that company right around the time I started going back to school. I, at that time, I was like, I want to go and get a doctorate to help uh, me do you know, research projects in the field. Because what I was seeing was that a lot of the companies that were getting you know, some of these research contracts were going to predominantly white organizations right. to go in and study you know, black and brown children, mostly because I was looking at a lot of education research. So I'm like, how are you going to tell me that you're more of an expert on, you know, you you know, people and culture, especially my people and my culture than I am. Right. But I understood that some of that was because of the educational attainment that they've been able to have. And so I started the company initially as thinking of it as like more of a research firm. Went While doing that, I went, okay, this is interesting, but there's still so many other programmatic things that I would like to fix, too. And so then I started con- to consulting with organizations on things like uh, theory of change, uh, uh, strategic management, looking at uh, a, a JEDI or justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives and how they could be more embedded into the organization. Uh, I started doing uh, trainings for both like nonprofit and corporate clients on things like intersectionality. and it's it's not to like go out and you know i have to teach everybody like these things and like teaching them about culture or teaching them about, it's not so much that i do it for those reasons i feel like this is the work that i'm being called to do and it mm-hmm. and it's and i'm putting this work out so if 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 you if you feel like you are about that work and you are about that movement then you know follow me right and find other people that are out there like that read books listen to podcasts like this do whatever it is that you need to do to go, to get to that next level. I'm doing this because, uh, you know, it's, I, I feel called to it. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about it. I love doing it. Um, but, you know, I'm not doing it because I feel like, Oh, I got to go out there and teach, you know, other people about my culture. Mm-hmm. That's not why I do the work. It's also not why I teach, you know, I'm an adjunct instructor as well at uh, New York university uh, and city college uh, here in the city. Uh, And that work is, is very much so the same. It's, it's what we said, you know, earlier about giving back for these seven generations later, you know, recording these things and then putting them out there. But um, yeah, so the, the, the company is, is really kind of focused on, on that right now. So it's, it's, it's building these um, sort of boutique opportunities and, and, and clientele to, to really, uh, you know, aid in sort of like this movement towards like a a better, more realized uh, future and so, you know, there's also some creative projects. I have uh, my web series called flow mm-hmm. uh, where I go around and i talk to uh, different uh, uh, black people who are really doing some incredible work in, in multiple fields. Uh, so, you know, not just uh, hip hop and uh, or, or the arts, you know, we're also looking at science uh, which some can argue is an art, you know, we're looking at politics, we're looking at education. And so, um, you know, doing, doing, doing as much as I, as I can with all of these things, man. And, um, and, uh, and, and keeping it uh, moving forward, I guess, mostly in, in that direction. <laughs> yeah. How can folks
0: um, learn more about all these projects? How can they follow you, reach out to you, all of that?
3: Absolutely. Um, probably, I would say I go to Instagram. So cultural innovation group on there. Uh, also my uh, website, cultural innovation uh, find me on Twitter, cultural LLC, um, yeah, it's, it's all out there for sure, you know, or, or Google me, Google, Google Daryl Cooper, everywhere. Dr. Everywhere. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, hopefully, you know, you know, um, hopefully you, you will hear some stuff that, you know, you can, uh, you can use and, and, you know, things that you can't, you know, you can't, but hopefully the things that you can, you, it can be very helpful and can at least get you on the right foot with advocating for the things that you might want.
0: Yeah. You have me really curious about this, this actual mumble rap, this baby rapping. So I think so I think I'll uh, outro with a little bit of that. But um, before I let you go, I just, you know, I I have one more question. You know, as I think about how we've gone from the spiritual to hip hop, how we've gone from the plantation to private jets, so to speak, maybe that's a bar. Mm. Uh, No, that is a bar. we see, we have, we have we've bear witness to what is possible. We see what is possible. For so many of us, sort of as we were uh, speaking to before, that possibility, that imagination just seems so far out of reach still. What are your words to, you know, the folks struggling to realize their best self, their, you know, imagination, fully realized self? What, what, are, your, what are your words to, to those folks just trying to press through and, 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 and get us closer to that liberation.
3: Don't give up that, that I would definitely start there. Don't give up. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to, to be in uh, uh, you know, an original. Um, and if, and if there's somebody out there that you admire and that you really look up to and, and, you know, from the, from the past or the present don't be afraid, afraid to remix them in some sort of way to you know to, to to invent you know the you you would prefer to be but but don't give up um and if you need something more practical uh try to find your tribe you know because they are out there and wanting to support you you know hopefully uh, and keep vibing until you do
2: uh-huh. Hit it, hit it, <laughs> hit it. That is hmm. right a now.
0: baby rapping, not the baby and not little baby, a baby, but a baby. Uh, shout out to uh, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get this name wrong. This is uh, Khalil. Eloy rapid this is from uh, the video was 2011 uh when little Khalil was 2 years old so i'm i'm sure his whole family looks back to this and just mm. you know it, it it it's something you know what what we were when, one of the things i was talking to Dr. Cooper about was how um cognitive so many things are and we spend so much time um teaching our uh elementary school kids trying to teach some of these adults as well rhythm You know, (laughs) I'm there steady beat, you know, really, really being into the groove of it flow that two year old had all of that. Mm. And hip hop is the way that that happens. So when we talk about education, when we talk about liberation, we have to begin to accept the fact that this black music, this music that is foundational to America can be used. For so much more, that two-year-old wasn't talking about bitches and hoes. That two-year-old wasn't talking about money and and guns and but all that stuff. But it was crucial, whatever he, he right, was right, believing. I agree it. with all points. Yes, <laughs> that, that you know it, it, again, it's about that flow and it's just about the idea. So when it's time for that baby to um, add lyrics to that. You know, to that mumble rap. We talk about mumble rap, right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to add some lyrics to that. The flow, the rhythm, the yeah. feeling, all of that stuff is there. That that video will be linked um, in the in the description of this. But anyway, shout out to Dr. Darrell Cooper. Thank you so much uh, for coming on to Triloquy. And as soon as I can find my Triloquy tune... Okay, here we go. We're going to get into the fourth movement. You ready for the Triloquy sound? I can't wait. It's simple. It's just a trill. Here we go. Well. Oh. I have to be in the. I have to be in the program. Okay, here we go.
3: On nice your toes trill there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, here in the final movement. For folks who are new, we take a couple things that are going out there and present them to you as trill as we can. Not sugarcoating things. Not you know putting a nice bow on it just delivering it. I want to and we've been off for 2 weeks, so of course there've been many things. I can't get to everything. There's right. a lot of problems. I want to just talk about a couple of things that um stood out to me uh over these past 2 weeks. So first and foremost, um in the description, I will link an image of a cartoon produced by NPR Classical National Public Radio uh Classical. We have a woman, a clearly a woman of color here, um who is pregnant. Um, it looks like she's going into labor and her caption is, honey, I think it's time. The white man at the laptop, sitting down, not paying attention to this woman of color in labor says, can I wait 10 minutes? Tanglewood tickets are about to go on sale. Scott, react.
1: <laughs> um, I will be honest and tell you that at first glance, I didn't catch the problem. Okay, meaning that I wasn't thinking about uh, how black women uh, are are sometimes ignored, and especially when it comes to medical issues. Yeah, that I, I, th- that thought didn't come to me come to mind. I just thought that it wasn't very funny. I
0: mean that the Tanglewood tickets we have a lived reality. I'm not going to go on Google and and look up the statistics, but it is real out here for black women and other women of color when it comes to childbirth, when it comes to access Mm -hmm. to equitable health care. This isn't even a joke that I think should be made. If anything, I think it sort of highlights one of the problems that we're talking about. We have a white man in here paying more attention to so-called so called classical music and ignoring the problems that are directly around us for the for the sake of it mm-hmm. the, the, clearly we talk about who is in the room and who isn't in the room clearly someone was not in the room i I doubt any woman was in the room to for, right. to make light of of that sort of thing uh, but you know you know it is what it is. I hope that the folks I, I made a stink about it over on Twitter you know because i'm where did I, that go. Well, I was going to say, I'm good at getting more engagements than the original thing. <laughs> so you're trying to be cool unsuccessfully on Twitter anyway, with two to four engagements. And then you're trying to be funny on top of it and dropping the ball. I'm not,
1: I'm not surprised because I have seen you go into interviews where you're being interviewed. And you turn it around on the other person. And <laughs> I, so need, I, I need to do better about that. <laughs> um,
0: but I just didn't think it was that funny.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's not,
0: uh, it's it, not it's not that funny at best. At worst, it's violent. It's a bit misogynistic. I would even throw racism in. The, it's just it's just tone deaf. the The room was not red. So. But it might be
1: meta here because look at one of the comments. Uh, sh- uh, a woman. Shares a story about going into the bathroom. Her water breaks. She comes back out and says, "We need to go. My water broke." His reply was, "I just ordered wine."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, I am tired. <laughs> so, see, I, and, and, so and so he was probably drinking wine by himself at the table. If she nine months pregnant, I mean, yeah. you know, did he get a solo cup for the ride to the hospital? And then folks and folks get mad when uh, people say men ain't shit. But anyway. I am one of them. <laughs> I got to get I got to get a uh, I got to get quicker about that. You know, people people get mad when people and when uh, women say men ain't shit. <laughs> anyway, that, that that that's the first triloquy. Let's get to this uh next triloquy. if you can um Yeah, I'm falling go. down on the job here. Yeah, no, you're fine. So, speaking of Twitter, okay? Somebody tweeted something quite inappropriately, a very famous sax player, a sax player that I've performed with on multiple occasions, tweeted the following. Don't get me wrong, I'm all in for Florence Price symphonies, but I'm pretty sure calls for greater inclusivity were meant for living composers. Boy, they tow him up. Where's your buzzer button? (laughs) Your incorrect (laughs) answer? Oh, I need, that's what I need. Let's go ahead and give him the (laughs) flag for now. For Um, now. Yeah, no, that's that's not what they were talking about. Next, <laughs> this this was interesting to me because the story that I tell a lot of people is that. Where my journey started trying to change the aesthetics of classical music, so-called classical music, it was with new music, it was with the living composers. Mm-hmm. It's through that that I discovered that there are so many women composers and oh, black sure. composers, and composers sure. that, that we never even know about. So from there, that's when I'm going back historically, and I'm finding the William Grant Stills and the Margaret Bonds, Florence Price and them. So I understand what Timothy McAllister, my bad, I said, name. I understand what Timothy McAllister meant. But that is not what he said. Mm -hmm. He said... I'm pretty sure calls for greater inclusivity were meant for living composers. So the implication of this tweet is that it's time for us to forego the Florence Price symphonies. Don't don't get me on the orchestra uh, roster websites. Mm. It's it's gonna be Brahms and Beethoven all 2021 and 2022. It is not time to sideline any woman composer, and certainly not any black woman composer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I mean, again, as as you say, read it before you hit send read it before, you know, read it before you, you publish. A lot of, a lot of the critics are saying, well, classical music, we need to stop trying to act like we are participating in cancel culture. And y'all knew what he meant and X, Y, and Z. What do you think about, um, specifically, responses to tweets like this. Is it wrong for somebody to be upset? I was just about to say, I'd like to see what the follow up was. <laughs> there, Did, oh, there was some follow up. Yeah. You should go on his Twitter okay. and, and look. Right. I mean, lots of apologies. Again, the apology tour, uh, okay. a couple threads but, on Facebook. But was it legit? I. Did you believe it? I believed it. It doesn't take away what was said. And I think there, yep. has to, there has to be just an acknowledgement that you fucked up, that, that, that you said something wrong. And we, maybe some of us understand what you meant. I don't, I don't really think that matters. I think an acknowledgement of why this is wrong and doing something about that other than just tweeting your apology is necessary. We're talking about saxophones. We're talking about Black Music Month. If anybody can play a saxophone. Mm -hmm. Is who, you know? Right. We we black people can do that job. Okay. So don't take for granted that you are replaceable. We are all replaceable to an extent, but when we're talking about white men and so called classical music trying to sideline Florence Price, he, he doing good not to have been there with Robert Lynch as far as I'm concerned. Whenever I'm presented
1: with a situation like this and I get an apology that I don't buy, I say, Well, sorry, don't feed the bulldog.
0: Joe, sure don't. <laughs> See, last thing I want to get to um, before we close out. This isn't classical music specific, but I think it's so important. So across the South, and even I think like in Montana, Idaho, those places, critical race theory is under attack. They're trying to. It's make, gone in Idaho. They're they're trying. It's gone in Tennessee now too. they they're trying to oh they're God. trying to make it to where. So much of American history, so much of our history, and when I say our, I mean all of our history. That is all of our history as Americans. It's it's being pushed under the rug. I, I, I almost don't know what to say about it because it's, it's... Folks know my opinion. Folks know our opinion on it. I think what I try to get at... Um, I guess even to connect it to classical music, is that we have the opportunity in the arts to make sure that this history is not lost. Tennessee, Idaho, Mississippi, all of these states, uh, Texas, talking about indentured servants mm. instead of slaves, instead of enslaved Workers. Africans, Workers. Were Like the, those, those mm-hmm. terms that they were used instead of saying the truth, enslaved right. Africans, that gets into people's cognition and and, and into the culture and then it's generational we have already acknowledged that none of us learned about Tulsa right in, in high school so they're trying to erase so much more of that. So that is why we have to use music. We have to use music and take the opportunity to remember. We have to understand what William Grant still was talking about when he wrote his second symphony and uh, subtitled it a, so- a Song of a New Race. You know, that fourth symphony, the Autophanous Symphony, that's a word a lot of people don't know. Basically, it gets to something being created in a space. We There is nowhere else for us to go, there is nowhere else that these stories exist musically. You know, when we talk about the Negro spiritual and all the other black music that came from it, when we talk about um, the oppression and the struggle that we have been fighting, you know, For 400 years now when we talk about the victories along the way you know all of that is a part of the story and taking away any part of it is so violent and if any of us are going to allege to be on the right side of history we have to do everything we can to make sure this history is not being forgotten on the music front that's happening everywhere we have to make sure it's uh happening beyond music because it's it's not going to be anything before you know those stories are are gone forever all right well are, are we about done <laughs> oh, no, i know thought, i thought you were getting ready to hit the hit the gong button i thought you were on a roll there so all right thought, well again thank you everyone for tuning in to uh, episode one of season three great to have you here we're switching up the feel a little bit trying to be a little looser a little bit more live to tape so really appreciate you before i hit this gong free palestine <laughs>